Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome again to Encounter Church. I'm super pumped uh, this morning. I have, like, some of the best news ever to share with you guys. Three weeks from today, October 30, it's our baptism weekend happening at both of our locations. It is very exciting. You might remember last weekend I shared from the survey results, again, thank you, that a number of you identified like, this is your next courageous step of faith. And I said, okay, if that's true, if Jesus is saying that, start the conversation, go to encounterchurch.org slash baptism, fill out the form, share your story, and let's go public with your faith. Well, a bunch of you did, and that is like the best thing in the world. We can't wait to celebrate. It means two things. Number one, you're not going to want to miss Sunday, October 30. So three weeks today, cancel whatever travel plans you've got going on. You want to be here. And the second thing is that since we are doing this, this courageous step of faith, taking, uh, taking uh, this step towards baptism, going public with your faith, ask, ask, your, ask your Lord, uh, ask your Savior, is it time to go public with my faith? Is this not just happening in my community? Is this something that's going to happen with me at the center of it? And if so, start that conversation, encounterchurch.org slash baptism. Uh, Today we're we're finishing off the series, Stop the Drift. And if you're just joining us for the series, like that's awesome. It's a perfect time. Every weekend is a perfect time to make make worship a part of your spiritual rhythm. The idea behind the series is simple, is that you will never drift where God wants you to be. In fact, you will never drift into the direction that you want to be, that you want to end up in. It's got to be a conscious, predetermined choice to stop the drift. And that's what we're doing by taking a look at the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. And as our way of kind of getting into the story this morning and how important it is, I want to kind of acknowledge uh, together something that you already know about the kind of world that we live in. And again, you know this already because you've seen this sort of thing play out time and time again, is that we live in, in this particular world that marked marked by, by canceling people, right? That we live in a cancel culture. We live in a world where you can get canceled. And, and so just, again, I'm not preaching on whether that's right or wrong or what conditions or any of that. I'm just like acknowledging that this is a thing that you guys know and you guys could share stories about popular figures, celebrities, maybe politicians, other people who have just, we've decided, we've collectively decided as a culture to like cancel on them. And you've seen like the, the rhythms and you've seen the patterns of like uh, of somebody's misstep, mistake, somebody's failure or fault. And it's like no matter what else they've done in their life, it's like that. Their whole life is, is marked by like and defined by that one thing, by that one mistake, that one failure or that one fault. I mean, you've seen kind of the, the pattern of how we do this. We take politics as a great example. It's a great example of what we do is we look to the other side. We look like the other team, the other side of the aisle. And we look over and what do we do? We maximize their faults. We maximize their failures. We maximize the ways that they fall down. But then we look at our team. We look at our side and we look at our, our team members and we minimize, right? We, we cover, we kind of make these uh, sort of excuses for, you know, like, you know, that was a long time ago. They already apologized. They went to rehab. What else can we ask of them, right? We maximize their faults. We minimize our faults. And for ourselves, we justify our own mistakes. We don't just minimize, we justify. And we say, okay, that, that doesn't define me, right? Because I know me. I've lived with me nearly my entire life, <laughs> And I know that that doesn't define who I am as a person. That was just, it was a long time ago, right? Or, or you know, it was the first year of marriage. I was just starting off in the, in the job world, right? 
And so I can ju- I have a million ways of justifying myself. And so all this is to simply say that our topic this morning is so important because of the culture that we live in, that there's somebody out there who could very well maximize your faults, maximize your failure. So you have to know that your integrity matters possibly more than any other time in history. Not just because of the culture that we live in, but because also everything is documented. You know, when I was a kid, I had the blessed experience that when I did a dumb thing, it wasn't on the internet because the internet didn't exist. I'm looking out there and a lot of you do not have that luxury, right? Like your whole life is captured and posted. And if it's not you who's capturing it and posting it or your friend group who's capturing and posting it, it's like you're just in the background of the thing that gets posted. And so it's never been easier to like dig dirt up on somebody and that somebody could be you. So I'm just going to make this appeal just one more time. Your integrity matters now, possibly more than at any other time in history. So we have to learn how to get this thing right. And I think we have to learn why we should get this thing right in order to actually live it out. So we're going to go to a story in the Bible. You can look it up. It's Daniel chapter 6. We're going to hang out there for a little while this morning. We're phone friendly. If you want to take a note down or two, that'd be awesome as well. But listen, Daniel 6. You guys know the story. It's a, it's a story of Daniel and the lion's den. And I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm just going to flat out ask for a little empathy as a preacher on this one. Because like, this is a tough story to preach because everybody knows it already. Some of you grew up in church and you're like, I remember the flannel graph, you know, depending on your church budget. Like, I remember this whole thing kind of playing out. Others of you are like, I remember the illustrated children's Bible version of this story. This is Daniel. He's, he's young and he's handsome. He's got flowing blonde hair and these lions are cute and adorable. And he's just petting them all night long. I remember. I've seen this story. Others of you didn't grow up in church and you're like, I still know the story, dude. You know, it's like lodged back in my memory, uh, along with those other, you know, like the tortoise and the hare story, the boy who cried wolf, Daniel and the lion's den, like it's back there somewhere. Like I, we know the story. And so I just want to acknowledge it's a tough story to preach because what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to rescue this story from the barnacles of misinterpretation that we have put on it over thousands of years and to try to reclaim what this thing is actually about. For example, Daniel was not a young man when they lowered him into the lion's den. Daniel was probably in his mid-80s. That didn't make the children illustrated Bible version. The lions were not cute and cuddly and adorable. Have you guys ever seen a lion up close without like a protective measure in in between? Me neither. None of us have because we don't do that sort of thing. A deer, when I was running, a deer jumped in front of me like two or three feet away and I like needed to change my underwear. Terrifying. And that thing is a vegetarian. I couldn't imagine like a lion, right? I mean, it's a scary story at, 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 at its core, but we, we don't do that because we, we've heard it so often and, and what we're trying to do this morning is trying to say, no, 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 maybe it's not about that. Maybe the climax, the high point, the central, central part of it isn't about that. Has nothing to do with lions at all. So let's go into the story. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 6, and we're going to start this story off in, uh, in verse 3. And this is, this is what we read. We see Daniel was so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps uh, by his exceptional qualities 
the king, Darius, planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, last week, remember, there was a transition that took place from Babylon to Persia. I mean, this is like world history kind of stuff. You can, it's not just Bible history. This is world history. This is everything. God breaks into not just, you know, uh, world history, but your history, that kind of thing. He does break into history. It's cool uh, to, to understand some of this stuff. Um, to really appreciate some of the story, I think we got to like pull out uh, like the, the org chart of how Darius, how the king ran his empire. So obviously he's at the top of the pyramid, right? Like he's the boss, he's the head honcho, he's king. Well, he gets three administrators as like vice presidents uh, to kind of help him along with it. Daniel is one of those three administrators, which is really, really impressive. Like on a on a secular kind of historical level, that as an ancient document, that we see this guy is like elevated and promoted. It's, it's really impressive because it was exceptional qualities. It wasn't just that he could like interpret dreams. You don't keep a guy around. You don't put him at that level with just the dream thing. He's got to have other organizational leadership gifts about him to get promoted to that level. In addition to that, could you imagine like being a high-ranking official in the... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar administration and then like carried over to the Belshazzar administration and then carried over from the fall of Babylon and the invading Persians and the Persians are like, no, no, Daniel's still someone that we want to keep around. This is rare stuff. I think the king looks at him and is like, no, no, no we're going to keep him around because these exceptional qualities, the, the most exceptional one is that he's trustworthy. Is that he wasn't ever loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't a Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't a Babylonian guy. He was always loyal to his God in heaven. And because of that, we know where his allegiance is at all times. And sometimes he's going to say a kind word for me. Sometimes it's going to be a critical word for me. But you always know, you always know that he is at his core a trustworthy a trustworthy kind of person. He's an administrator. The downlines, we have to also pay attention. Those are sat traps. Now, from a historical perspective, archaeological perspective, we've got no idea what a set trap is, right? I mean, they're the down, we know that there was 120 of them. We don't know what they did. It was sort of like the title brand ambassador or brand evangelist. It's like, what is that? Like, nobody, presumably, I'm going to get an email from somebody. Presumably, you do something. We know that. I'm not, we just don't know what. (laughs) It's like consultant. Presumably, you do something. We just don't specifically, like, know what what that thing is. That's the 120 satraps that are the downlines from the administrators. What's happening in the story, Darius at the top, the king, is going, I think two of these three administrators are kind of skimming off the top. And this is what I'd like to do. Daniel, trustworthy guy, I'm going to put him in charge of the other two administrators. And you can kind of start to see this is not exactly going to make them the happiest people on the planet, verse 4. At this, these other two administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. History lesson, this guy has worked for governments for 55 years at this point. He's, he's transitioned from king to king to king to king, from Babylonian to Persia. You know there's dirt on this guy. Even without the internet, we can find something, Right? But they were unable to do so. They could find, quote, no corruption in him. Because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. He wasn't bad or dumb over his 55-year government career. 
Why? We heard it in Daniel chapter 1. Because when he arrived in this land as a teenager, he made a commitment. And every decision that he made since that point was just simply following up on that commitment that he made when he was 17 years old. Daniel resolved. He resolved to be obedient to God no matter what. And so everything else was just so much easier. It's so much easier that Dan, Daniel, Daniel, he made up his mind ahead of time. And it paid dividends down the line. I just, I just wonder, some of those commitments that we make as teenagers, we might not see all of the fruit, the best fruit that God grows from that until decade after decade goes by. And then we come back to that moment and it's like, oh, if I hadn't made that decision, how different life would be. Daniel, he made up his mind ahead of time. Now, what was probably going on with the other two administrators and, and the satraps that they were conspiring against them, it was probably some grift happening uh, in the kingdom. This is, not, this is not uncommon by any means. That probably explains why the king was elevating Daniel above the other dudes. He, he kind of he knew it. He had a feeling about it, but he couldn't quite prove it. He didn't know beyond a shadow of a doubt. So he's like, I'm going to put somebody else in charge. I mean, these administrators are probably, probably like um, working with the satraps to like, Pocket, pocket some money, like get, get a little, you know, for themselves. And, and they knew, they knew they, were, they, they couldn't involve Daniel in this thing, right? Because Daniel, what do we know about him? Daniel resolved, Daniel, Daniel made up his mind ahead of time about what he was going to do no matter what. And we see these guys, we see these guys try to just like pull him down. And this is what I think is one of the most remarkably relatable parts of the story, is that when God is, when God is raising you up, you can almost expect other people to start to try to bring you down. We've seen this thing, man, all over the place. Uh, one of the most difficult jobs, um, previous to this one, my, like, you know, the, the last real job that I had, uh, I was an optical lens technician. I made glasses. Um, it's, it's a weird gig, and I know. People don't expect that. But uh, So we made glasses. We had this like, kind of assembly line, a bunch of different steps involved in the process. You know the job that like nobody else wanted to have in the entire like, the whole assembly line thing? We all took turns on different jobs, different stations to keep things interesting. The job nobody ever wanted to have. It wasn't the job that was like most physically demanding. To be honest with you, making glasses is not a very physically demanding kind of job. <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't the messiest job because there were a lot of messy jobs involved in that, in that process with mud and polish and, and all this other stuff. It wasn't that. The worst job that nobody ever wanted to have was being the guy at the end of the line to look into the little thing and to, and to inspect the, the glasses for blemishes and to make sure it was within our, our corporate tolerances before signing our initials on it and putting it out the window. Nobody wanted to have that job because down the line, everybody's bonuses, everybody's reward was tied to how many of these went out the window in perfect condition. And nobody wanted to be the one to say, actually, guys, and I don't know who it was, but based on the mistake, I could probably make a guess. Or I don't even know, maybe it wasn't our mistake, or maybe it was the machines, and it really doesn't matter, because this thing doesn't pass. And I am telling you, when there's an incentive behind it, when there's a bonus behind it, the tension rises in the room. And you guys get this. Because you also, many of you, have real jobs. And you know, and you know that when God is doing something in you 
to, to create this kind of integrity, doing what you ought to, even when it costs you. You know that the tension tends to rise in the room. When God, when God is building you up, there's someone there who's going to try to take you down. I mean, it's like a law of nature. It's something we've come to expect by now. Moms, you guys can't win. You just can't win, right? Because you make this decision to like, you know, I think Jesus is asking me to like stay home and like look after and care for these little ones that he's entrusted to me. And there's going to be somebody with a big foot in their mouth who's going to come around and say, oh, I can't believe you like wasting your college degree on just these two, right? Like well, you should go out because you have a career and serve the world and do all these things. And if you decide to do that, if you decide to go out and just have a career and like do the thing and Jesus is asking you to have an impact there, it's like, oh, have you forgotten about your most important and adorable calling sleeping in the upstairs room right above you? You can't win. When God is doing something in you, there's always, when God is raising you up, there's always someone who's going to be there to take you down. Some of you guys have like made this commitment, signed up for FPU, maybe right here at Encounter, and you're like, I'm going to get out of debt. You wouldn't believe the people who come out of the woodwork. I know, because I tried it after school, paying off, you know, student loans and stuff like that. People who come off and be like, that's a terrible idea. Why would you restrict your lifestyle? Don't you want to go out to eat every once in a while? Don't you want to live? You ever want to have a nice car? This is like what you have to do. And it's like, I, what are you saying? You're never going to be able to do it. You're always going to fail. And it's like, so what if I fail? So what if I miss it by like half? Isn't that like half better than zero at all? Like what? <laughs> When God is building you up, there's always somebody going to be there to take you down. We've seen it time and time and time again. I think one of the hardest things is like when you're trying to do something like for yourself, you're trying to like exercise, eat better, and you know the people around you are going to like take you down as a result. It'll never work. You failed before. See how long this one lasts. You know, I think about how difficult it would be, how difficult it is. It is to give up drinking, to give up alcohol in Beer City, USA. And everybody has an opinion about that. This comedian, I love it, Jim Gavigan. He's like, why, why do we, when somebody says they're not drinking, we always have to know why. Why aren't you drinking? He's like, alcohol is the only thing we do that with, right? If somebody shows up at a party and they're like, oh, no, thanks, I don't, I don't eat mayonnaise. It's not like, why don't you eat mayonnaise, did you have a problem with mayonnaise? <laughs> we don't do that, right? How difficult it is. When God is building you up, there's always going to be someone to take you down. Number one, number one response, number one resistance point to people considering going public with their faith, getting baptized. What if I fail? Everybody around me sees that I went public and then I failed. And there's going to be someone there to cut me down. Possibly. <laughs> Probably. But listen, this thing was built on failure. This thing was built on my personal failure and sin. And Jesus, Jesus takes that and he buries that under the water of baptism and raises up to new life. And it's not a matter of if you're going to fail again. I got news. There's nothing mysterious or magical about that water, but it's Jesus. And if you're not dead, he's not done. There's going to be failure. And there's going to be forgiveness. And the cycle keeps going. And he's got a plan. 
When God is raising you up, it's always going to be someone to take you down. Like there was someone to take Daniel down. So these guys get together and they decide, hey, we've got to do something, right? We've got to end this thing. So this is, this is what they come up with, verse 5. Finally, these men, these administrators, with their downlines, with their satraps, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so this is, this is his plan. It's, it's so awesome. All right, these guys they come up and they hatch this plan. They're like, okay, we're in a horizontal. Like, that's not, no blemish, no fall. He's not bad or dumb. We're going to get him in the, in the vertical thing. So they, they hatch this plan to go before the king, to go before Darius, and to like really, really butter him up and to get him in a really great mood. You know, like, hey, Darius, you're looking so good, dude. I can tell you've been working out. You lost a little weight. You did? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you're looking good. Hey, I got a pitch for you. Big old campaign. You know, a big old campaign is called the, the Days of Darius campaign, all right? And we've got 30 days of Darius celebration. It is going to be epic, dude. We're going to have parades. We're going to have floats. We're going to have matching t-shirts. We're going to have a foam pit. We're going to have public executions because that was a thing. We got it all, Darius. And you, you are going to be in the center of it. And maybe he was into it. Maybe he wasn't into it because he's like, what are you, like, people got to pray to me? Like, I'm some kind of, I know me, I'm not a god. And they're like, yeah, Darius, if you don't do it for you, do it for the kingdom, Darius. We need to unify. We need to unite behind you, King Darius, days of Darius. Can you imagine your name in lights going to be epic? And by the way, you're right. Nobody else can pray to anybody except for you, you know, because it's, it's days of Darius. It's just 30 days. It's not a big deal. Do it for the kingdom, bro. And he says yes. He greenlights the idea. And the days of Darius' campaign launches, and the 30 days of praying only to Darius starts. Verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened and now for me, and I think the story, the storyteller of Daniel, this is everything. This is the critical moment. Forget about the public execution, forget about the floats, forget about the lions, forget about the pit. This moment right here. There's an open window. And what is he going to do? This is the defining moment. Where his integrity is put on the line one more time. Do I do what I ought to, even when it costs you? There's a question like, what does he do? Better question, what would you do? I mean, that, that's the point, right? In that window moment, forget about the lines, window moment. What do you do? I'll tell you something that incredibly, incredible happens. In those window moments, in those open window moments, you find out something about yourself. You find out in those integrity-testing moments what in this world is most important to you. Daniel finds out in those moments what is most important to him. Let's finish the story. Verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home, upstairs room, windows open, toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees. He, 
praying, giving thanks to his God. I love this. Just as he had done before. Because he already made up his mind. Not like yesterday, not just before the decree went out. He made up his mind. When he was 17, he decided what or who is most important to him. He pre-decided. I mean, there is so much so much content, so much lessons right there. I mean, you just think for a minute about the last time you like, made a commitment to like, I'm going to be the type of person who gets up before anybody else and like goes to the gym, right? And you're like, yeah, but here's the deal. You know, I, I don't want to like fully commit to it, so I won't set an alarm. And I'll just kind of see if I wake up in that moment and like choose that. You know how that story ends every single time, but not Daniel, not Daniel. He's the guy who sets his alarm. He's the guy who pre-decided. I know what I ought to, even when it costs you. I am going to to pray, not to Darius. I'm going to pray to my Lord every single time. And he never tells us what he prays. I don't know. But I have a hope for you. In those open windows kind of moments, I have a hope for you of what I think you should pray, and it's simple. In that open window integrity testing moment, to pray a simple prayer, Jesus, I want an easy life. That's honest. And I also want you. If I can't have both, help me to choose you. When you are faced with that temptation that is unique to you, and maybe somebody else knows, maybe nobody else on the planet knows about it, but that integrity testing moment, windows open kind of moment, Jesus, I want an easy life. I also want you. If I can't have both, help me to choose you. It's remarkably clarifying in that moment. And you guys, you guys know, you guys know a lot of the rest of the story on this one, right? Like, like you, you guys know that as soon as the decree was published, as soon as everything was written down, before the ink was even dry on Darius's page, the administrators, the satraps, the downlines, to the downlines, like every they were following, following Daniel along. Spies like watching, just, just waiting for the opportunity. There he is, just like he was yesterday and the day before that. The window is open, he gets on, he kneels. Oh man, we got him. You know, you know how the thing goes where they catch him in the act and it's put the, the wheels in motion that go before these guys, these administrators go before Darius and they're like, hey, listen, you know, king, uh, just a little bit of bad news on this one. You know, we were, just, we we're just over at Daniel's place. You know, we're dropping off the 30 days of Darius swag bag over at, at his place. I mean, we saw something. We accidentally kind of bumped into him and we saw he was just praying to a God. He's praying to a God who wasn't you. And now, you know, we, we got to, well, you know what happens next, right? And Darius, I mean, listen, Darius is just busted up over it. Verse 13, this is what the guys say. They're like, Daniel, you know, is one of the exiles. He's not one of us. He's from Judah, you know, that place way over there. They're always a bunch of trouble. Pays no attention to you or the decree that you put in writing. He still prays, you know, three times a day. And we're so disappointed. Aren't we, fellas? We're really disappointed. Yeah, we're, we're really disappointed. And, 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 and oh, man, um, Darius, is, Darius is busted up over it. Like, genuinely like upset. He, Daniel was the guy that he was going to put in charge of his whole kingdom, like his right hand man. And now he's got to like you know, throw him in, the, throw him in the, the lion's pit. So he gets together his lawyers, he gets together his lobbyists, everybody, and like, hey man, we got to get out of this thing, this decree that I made. If, if Elon Musk can like 
you know, try to buy Twitter, get out of buying Twitter, then buy Twitter again. Like, if this thing can go, like, surely I'm the king. I can get out of this jam, right? Nothing at all. They're like, no way, man. Like, you made this thing solid. You can't get out of it no matter what. In verse 16, the king, so the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel, and they threw him in the lion's den. They didn't throw him in the lion's den. This is one of those barnacles of misunderstanding that we're talking about. That's tr- the word is translated, throw him. They lowered him. He's 85 years old. They throw him in the pit. He's going to break a hip. We're going to be reading about that instead. They lower him. They lower him into the lion's den. And the king, but not before, the king leans over. And this is so powerful, truly. The king leans over. Darius leans over. He whispers into Daniel's ear, and he goes, may your God, whom you serve, whom you serve continuously, rescue you. May your God, you are so devoted to, you are so dedicated to, may your God, that, that you're so dedicated to, it's, you're even more dedicated to him than you are your own life, preserving your own life. May that God rescue you. And so verse 17, the next line, a stone was brought, was placed over the mouth of the grave. I'm sorry, the den. You can start to hear these, these echoes of the Jesus story kind of ring through. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of all, the, all of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And then the king returned to his palace and he spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep because he knows. He knows how this thing ends. This ain't a Disney movie. There's no soundtrack changing. Like he lowered Daniel into, into, into the pit and there's like, there's, there's blood, and there's guts, and there's rats, and there's maggots, right? Like, people have died in here in the past. He knows. There's way too much blood on the floorboards for this thing to be G-rated. He knows. He knows how this thing ends. And the thing of it is, by this point, I think you guys hopefully get it too, Daniel also knows how it ends. He's like, okay, come what may. I've been faithful to God my whole life. And when I lay my head down for the last time as they lower me down, I do it with a clear conscience. Daniel goes into this moment, again, one more time, we've heard this before, but I just want to take the moment to remind you, he goes down into that pit of hungry lines, believing that God can't save him, expecting that God will save him, but trusting him, even if he doesn't. Now, now, we're like, this is when the action starts. This is, this is when everything really, really gets interesting. For Daniel, man, the tension in the story is not the part about the lions. The tension in the story already took place. It's not a lion's pet kind of story. It's an open window kind of story. What do you do at that moment? Once he resolved, once he chose that, everything else is, is, just, is just details. So they, they, they lower him down into the pit, right? And, and Darius, he's still, he can't sleep, you know, no entertainment getting brought to him. He's just, he's worrying, he's, he's sick. He's sick, worrying about Daniel this whole time. And so first light morning, he runs out again. It's kind of echoes of the Jesus story, like the women running to the grave. He runs to the grave, he runs to the pit. You know, he rolls back, he rolls that stone away, and he calls out like, Daniel, Daniel, has your God, whom you serve continually, has your God rescued you? And I think Daniel kind of like pauses for dramatic effect. He had all night to think about it. And he's like, 
My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. Just taking a cat nap all night. Thank you. Uh, They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed. And he gave the orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. There's a couple of takeaways for us on this story. A couple of takeaways in this story. First, first part of the story, um, it's not a pit, it's not a lion's pit story, it's a windows open kind of story. No matter what happened after the windows, after the window story, I think Daniel won. He couldn't lose. Because what Daniel doubled down on was something that he couldn't have ever lost. You know, we, like, we look at this like there's tension in the story, but for him, I mean, if he lives, if he dies, it doesn't matter. He can't lose anything because he pushed all of his chips in on the eternal significance of that moment. So he's like, I mean, if I live, if I die, what's the difference? What I have gained in this moment, I can't lose. I win no matter what because he bet on integrity, following after his God, doing what you ought to even when it costs you. He's good. He wins. The flip part of the story, flip part of the story, not everybody does. The disciples following Jesus, every single one of them thrown to their proverbial lions and they didn't make it out alive. And it's so easy to look at a story like that and say, oh man, they lost. But no, 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 what they did, what they did is chose to win every time. No matter what because they bet they bet on eternity every single time judas the story of of judas you know he gets frustrated he gets tired he makes a bet 30 pieces of silver and i just think it's it's so short-sighted and we've covered this before i know but it's short it's so short-sighted to to trade trade your eternity to trade your integrity to trade what matters most for like 30 pieces of silver 30 pieces of silver that when you spend it whatever you spend it on is going to be digested forgotten or rusted at some point in your life and even if judas didn't have this untimely death he would have lost just given enough time But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus in John 11 is like, you know what? I think it's time for us to go to Jerusalem. And everybody around him is like, dude, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And they weren't wrong. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to lose. And he's like, lose? You don't know what my win is. No, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to make sure that I win no matter what. So this is what I want to ask you, church. In those windows open kind of moments, what is your win? What is most important to you? And what you do as a result will simply demonstrate and clarify that. That's one thought. The second thought is just how remarkably clarifying it is. To have that assurance. This is author Timothy Keller, pastor, writer. He says, in those windows open kind of moments, paraphrasing, everything is on the line. 
You can't stay neutral. Not towards God. Everybody has feelings. And when everything is on the line, it either drives you, pushes you away from God, or it drives you like a nail deeper into the love of God than you ever thought possible. And you find out what's most important to you or who is most important to you. And you find out who you are and whose you are. And it can be an incredibly beautiful story. We're going to end our time a little bit differently because I want to introduce you to a family, to a couple who face their open windows moment and they found out deeper into the love of God they found out who and whose they really are let's experience the the story of Matt and Meredith and their son Jack together my name is Meredith Lohman and I'm Jack's mom Jack was born with a rare brain disease when he was 15 months old he was officially diagnosed with hemimegalencephaly Hemimegalencephaly is a disease that half of the brain grows larger than the other half. consult with the neurosurgeon and he pretty much told us that even though Jack hasn't had any seizures yet, he would be comfortable doing surgery because of how detrimental the seizures could eventually be for him. It was so hard to believe because he was perfectly healthy. I was sitting there looking at him in his stroller thinking, I, you, there has to be something wrong here. We didn't know if he was going to be able to walk, if he was going to be able to talk, if he was going to be able to communicate with us, if, if he was going to be able to do anything, you know, such a significant surgery. surgery, there was an overwhelming wave of peace that just rushed through me. I have never felt so confident in my faith and knowing that there's a community surrounding us and lifting us up when we couldn't even pray. Having a church that went out of their way to have everybody pray throughout the entire day of the surgery was incredible. You know, those things that you think of and you know that there are people that are carrying you through that and knowing that we don't have to carry that burden ourselves was, was a pretty powerful thing. I am so thankful that people were praying for us, um, thinking about us all day because that's something that you can't handle on your own. Um, God doesn't want you to. He put people 
in those places to take care of that burden for you and that fear for you and um, to give you a voice and a prayer when you can't even um, imagine doing that. So I think that being part of Encounter and the service that they set up um, with the prayer chain and meals later on, like that really pushed us through that 24 hours. I don't think people realize how life-changing that was for us as a family, um, but also personally, um, just to not feel fear and doubt when your child has been in surgery for 24 hours really says something about the power of God in prayer. So if there's one thing that I would love for everyone to understand is that our family wants to thank you. Thank you to Tiny Torch. Hey Church, it's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group, or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.